In our first episode on Antony and Cleopatra, we noted that the play ends with a sense of failure and success. In this episode, we explore the play's divided perspectives on the central couple to ask what their lives ultimately mean from the perspective of history and the perspective of myth. Joyce MacDonald, Professor of English at the University of Kentucky, guides our discussion. The play's first lines invite us to pass judgment on the characters. The Roman Philo declares, The dotage of our generals overflows the measure, his goodly eyes now turn their view upon a tawny front. The triple pillar of the world is transformed into a strumpet's fool. Behold and see. Some elements of the play support Philo's contemptuous view, but others challenge it. Philo is disgusted by what he sees as Antony's submission to Cleopatra and her tawny front. His contempt for Cleopatra has, I think it has a racial element to it, but I think it's also, it it just doesn't feel right for someone who is supposed to be a Roman triumvir to be so in love with this woman who is supposed to be his inferior. When Antony and Cleopatra make their entrance and Antony says that they're making their own world within the circuit of his arms. You can imagine how disorienting and offensive this would be to members of the Roman mission. We're not here to be these people's partners. We're supposed to be their masters. So on the one hand, we get Philo's report, but on the other hand, we also immediately see how wrapped up they are in each other. And so these immediate two competing perspectives. My students can see the love and the intensity and the glamour of their relationship, but they're also always a little bit reserved in the first couple of acts. They always think of Cleopatra and Antony as somewhat trivial people that we don't have to take seriously. But then, you know, Barbus comes up with this passage, the barge she sat in burned on the water. And it's just mesmerizing. We see Cleopatra in a very different way here than Philo sees her. You know, Barbus is convinced that she embodies a kind of significance that Antony cannot resist and that maybe shouldn't be resisted. You know, Barbus is such a straight shooter and he's so loyal to Antony. And hearing it from Ina Barbus, I think, gives it a certain validity. She doesn't fit a norm of Rome. She overflows the measure, which is a term that Philo uses in a very denigrative, critical way. But for Ina Barbus, her excess is part of her magic. Philo speaks scornfully of Cleopatra's tawny or dark skin, seeing her as politically inferior and as racially other. But Cleopatra's difference is part of her attraction for Antony, a Roman soldier who has always departed from Roman norms. The political issues in the play are very much about Rome's attempts to exert imperial authority, to absorb this very different kind of place into the territory that it controlled. This is a moment at the beginning of empire. 
And it's an empire that is going to be built in recognition of racial difference, but also in uh, the interest of advancing the authority of one race over the races of its subject peoples. The early modern world, one of the ways in which they thought about race was definitely about skin color. And so when they call her tawny, it, it, it means that they don't see her as being as white as a Roman or as white as a member of that first Jacobean London audience for the play. The, the Petrarchan vocabulary that Shakespeare inherited assigns whiteness all kinds of moral qualities. And so when someone is tawny, it, it sort of symbolically negates those qualities of virtue, moral self-consciousness, virginity, honor, dignity, that that whiteness was held to include. What I really love is the scene where she's describing herself as Black, that she is with Phoebus's amorous pinches Black. The story in Ovid's Metamorphoses is that Phoebus Apollo, the, the god of the sun, had to humor his son Phaeton. He says, ask me anything, I'll give you anything. And the son immediately asks to drive the chariot of the sun. And immediately Phaeton loses control of these horses driving the sun around the earth. Some places the horses drive too close to the earth's surface and they burn up all the vegetation and they turn all the people black. And that's where black people come from. Ovid's Metamorphoses describes blackness as the result of a, a cosmic accident. But Cleopatra gives us a, a different mythography of her own racial difference. The reason she's dark is that she is bruised from Apollo's rough sex play, that he was so attracted to her, and that's why she's black, that she is with, with, with Phoebus's amorous pinches, black. It very casually rewrites the origin of black people. And this play is happening near the beginning of English colonial expansion when people are beginning to assign all kinds of negative values to a black skin, particularly to black women. And Cleopatra just totally negates that and says, well, that's not true. This is why people are really black. It's because I'm so beautiful and alluring. So it's really rewrote these emerging standards of black femininity in the period this Cleopatra is black, she's tawny, and she's fine with it. And what's more, Antony is fine with it. It's part of what draws him to her, I think, is that sense of difference, which matches his own departures from a Roman norm. The historical Antony was notorious for hanging around with actresses and pimps, giving these lavish, extravagant parties, always drunk in public. Plutarch finds it ridiculous and offensive. But it also suggests that the historical Antony didn't conform to uh, this Roman norm it's like he already had this potential and he's moving towards this new ideal of self-presentation. They show off a lot about how much in love they are and the wonderful sex they're having, which would probably make Octavius's skin crawl. He really is confused because his sense of who Antony was is, was formed in those, those desperate days after Caesar's assassination when Antony roused the public to his side. 
And it's like he's a different person. He went to Egypt and had this whole other life that Octavius doesn't know about. Octavius expresses confusion and disgust over Antony's revels in Egypt. But he also expresses an equally intense admiration for the soldier Antony had been. When thou once was beaten from Medina, at thy heel did famine follow, and this was born so like a soldier that thy cheek so much as lanked not. If he doesn't comprehend Antony's life in Egypt, it's not because he has no passion of his own. It's just directed towards a different end and expressed in different ways. In the discipline, for example, that he once admired in Antony. Roman history plays have uh, a lot of concerns about the role of a leader, what constitutes a person who is capable to run the country and to master all the opposition and to make a new polity. The world that Antony and Cleopatra imagine for themselves and they live in Egypt is not necessarily something that translates. Whereas Octavius is perhaps more in touch with how his skills and gifts can touch a more distinctively Roman desire for a way of identifying themselves in the world. Caesar is actually a pretty emotional person. He loves his sister. He is outraged when Antony abandons her. He loves Antony. He's heartbroken when he dies. But he gets himself together and he moves on. It's not that he doesn't have emotions. It's just that he is able to control his emotions more because the, the controlled Octavius is the Octavius that's going to work in Rome. He's not a bad person. He's not a cold person. He's, he's an extremely disciplined and focused person. The historical Octavius is much younger than Antonius. And so... This is the person that he's looking up to, and then they became rivals, and then they became enemies. But there's still that, that original sense of, of love and alliance. It's just that Octavius has the kind of gifts to see this through. I'm going to do what I have to do, and I'm not afraid to do it. Even though it will hurt me, I'll do it. Critics sometimes read Octavius as just a coldly rational, self-serving bureaucrat, a small-hearted politician next to Antony's heroic, romantic personality. But this reading runs the risk of reducing Caesar and Antony. In Rome, a soothsayer tells Antony, Thy spirit which keeps thee is noble, courageous, high, unmatchable, where Caesar's is not. But near him thy angel becomes afeard as being o'erpowered. If Antony's spirit is unmatchable, it must take an extraordinary individual to overpower him. The play asks us to consider seriously the values that both men represent. If we have no sense of any positive value belonging to Rome, we'll never understand why Antony is devastated after his losses in war or grasp what he feels he has lost. In the second half of the play, Antony starts to decline. He talks about losing his sense of himself. This is the person who led the battles in the field. He's somebody that you have to take seriously. 
But as the play reaches its climax in Actium and then goes on the downhill slide, he loses himself. In the first Battle of Actium, Antony abandons the fight to follow Cleopatra. One soldier says, I never saw an action of such shame. And Antony agrees. He once dismissed Rome's political standards of value. Let Rome in Tiber melt kingdoms are clay. The nobleness of life is to do thus, he said, embracing Cleopatra. But in opposing Caesar, he tried to reclaim those standards of value and is devastated that he fell short. I have fled myself and have instructed cowards to run. My very hairs do mutiny, for the white reprove the brown for rashness, and they them for fear and doting. I have lost command. Constancy, judgment, self-control, leadership, respect. These are the qualities Antony did once have, and now laments losing. He feels there is a real cost in what he has given up for Cleopatra, even if he would not or could not have done otherwise. My heart was to thy rudder tied by the strings and thou shouldst tow me after, he tells her. He tells her, don't you know, I follow you, that my heart is attached to you. And she looks at him like, I, I had no idea. She's surprised at that moment, I think by the depth of his attachment, by the depth of his dependence. And it's at that point, I think, that we in the audience start seeing that this is something that has that potential to turn towards a true tragedy because we understand how completely he's identified with her. She can go on without him, but he can't live without her. Earlier, Antony dismissed kingdoms as mere clay. After this loss, he laments that he no longer controls kingdoms. Now I must to Caesar send humble treaties. I, who with half the bulk of the world played as I pleased, he says. But then he translates the greatness of scale that used to mark his political power into the scale of his love. When Cleopatra cries, pardon, he replies, fall not a tear, one of them is worth all that is won and lost. If he no longer rules kingdoms, he shows some of that same great spirit in being willing to lose kingdoms for her. As the play fluctuates between different perspectives, so does Antony himself. He shifts between the values of Rome and Egypt, rejecting the claims of war and politics, only to be shattered when he fails as a political military leader. This sense of failure strikes again after the third battle of Actium, when he believes that Cleopatra cost him the battle by betraying him to Caesar. At this moment, he has lost his military glory and his relationship with her. He compares himself to a cloud that takes on a certain form, only to lose it in the next moment. Here I am Antony, yet cannot hold this visible shape. Attempting to embody both Egypt and Rome seems to have torn him apart. He is unable to hold the shape of either. 
It is the loss of his political status and the loss of Cleopatra that prompts his next move. Antony's fury after the battle drives Cleopatra to flee and send word that she has killed herself. Antony then says, Since Cleopatra died, I have lived in such dishonour that the gods detest my baseness. I, that with my sword quartered the world, condemn myself to lack the courage of a woman. She, which by her death says, I am conqueror of myself. Hoping to recover his honour as one-time conqueror of the world and to match his lover's brave example, Antony plans to rejoin Cleopatra in the afterlife by taking a decidedly Roman path, suicide. The notion of a Roman suicide was a kind of dignified way out. You retaining some control over your own death rather than being put to a shameful public execution. And so the notion of a Roman suicide is I am authoring my own end. I'm in control. I'm not in submission to others. Antony has tried to be Egypt and Rome, but at the end he falls short of both. Even his dignified Roman suicide partly fails as he wounds himself and cries, Not dead? But if Antony is torn between these two sets of values, Cleopatra synthesises and achieves both. She succeeds in this Roman ritual, but uses it to defy Rome. Octavius had hoped to make Cleopatra a trophy for his glory. Cleopatra escapes him through her suicide, which she claims as an indicator of both Roman honour and of Egyptian vitality. She also claims it both for herself and for Antony. As he disintegrates, we see Cleopatra rising and emerging in her own kind of greatness. When Cleopatra says she will author her own death after the high Roman fashion, she says, I'm going to die as your equal. I'm going to take over one of your rituals and use it for my own ends ends that include defying your power over me. She takes the asp to her breast like she's nursing a baby. So even though she's dying like a Roman aristocratic man, she is also dying as a woman, like a nurse. She takes over this Roman ritual and feminizes it. So I always think of her as dying both for herself and in some way performing that dignified Roman suicide that Antony can't perform for himself. It's like she's doing it for both of them. To go back and to fix what he couldn't accomplish and to proclaim its, its value and its dignity, but also to leave as a woman, as a mother. She says that uh, she wants to quicken him with her kisses. That notion of quickening is, is really powerful because it, that was the term when a pregnant woman first felt a baby stir in her womb. That what you felt was the, the baby's soul coming to life. He's her lover, but he's also her baby. And she's there to take care of him right, right up until the end. And the, the intimacy of their connection runs in all kinds of ways. This maternal sense in Cleopatra marks the intimacy of her personal relationship with Antony, but it also marks her identity as Egypt's queen and even the divine source of Egypt's life. 
the soldiers kind of gossiping. I heard great Caesar plowed her and she cropped. This equates her, her sexual body with the Egyptian landscape which was known as this amazingly fertile place that would be flooded by the Nile and produced all of these agricultural riches. The play points to this kind of larger-than-life mythological presence where she's identified with the, um, the Egyptian landscape itself, with the divinity and the mystery of it, the way it... it was so fecund and so rich. The play links Cleopatra with the Egyptian goddess Isis. In Egyptian mythology, the earth was Isis's body, which grew fertile when flooded by the Nile, which was said to be Isis's lover, Osiris. When Osiris was dismembered by his brother, Isis regathered the pieces and restored him. In Cleopatra's death, in her reclamation of Antony's death, she channels that divine, transformative power. Is it a moment of transformation rather than just death? Her last line is, why should I stay? And then there's this long dash, and it's like she dies in the middle of a sentence. And she just floats off into this other world beyond us. That indeterminate end is a way almost of affirming the existence of this greater thing that they're always reaching for or trying to tell other people that they have. We're so in love. We're so transgressive, you know, but at the end of the play, all of that stuff becomes seriously true. And she goes off to that other world where she's going to be with him. This idea that Antony and Cleopatra undergo transformation at the end is suggested by a recurring word in the play, becoming. This word encapsulates the play's dual perspectives. It sometimes points towards a fixed standard of behaviour, what is becoming in the sense of appropriate or fitting. But at other times, it refers to variability, variety, transformation, becoming something else. Caesar is aggravated that Antony's actions do not become him. But Cleopatra says of Antony, Beast thou sad or merry, the violence of either thee becomes. Antony calls her a queen whom everything becomes. Eno Barbus says that vilest things become themselves in her. In the same speech where he admires her infinite variety, Cleopatra's great power is that she can change into anything, and her death changes them both. There's a very Roman notion of what becoming behaviour is. That behaviour is not becoming of someone of your rank. But this word becoming also speaks to this kind of transitory quality where people are yearning towards something that's not here, but that they can bring into being if they, if they wish hard enough, if they, if they play hard enough, something that can become real. The play opens by asking us to judge Antony and Cleopatra. The word becoming points to two standards of judgment. 
There's the Roman standard of living up to a set, disciplined ideal, and the Egyptian one of overflowing the measure, crafting a unique, changeable, larger-than-life identity. We're asked which standard is the right way to measure greatness and whether the characters measure up to either. Cleopatra and Antony constantly perform their own greatness in hyperbolic language and gestures. For some readers, this extravagant performativity undermines their stature. By the end, it reduces their relationship to farce. The dying Antony still trumpets himself as the greatest prince of the world, while Cleopatra is struggling to heave his body up to her and making jokes about his weight. But... For other readers, the very size of their vision almost makes it a reality. Even Octavius sees at their deaths that something momentous has occurred. He says that there's not going to be a grave in the world that will contain a pair so famous. He knows that something big has happened. He knows what she's accomplished. And he acknowledges that they belong together. Caesar doesn't call the lovers loyal or noble, but famous. This word gestures towards what they have become. From the Roman perspective, the political, historical perspective, they might be considered failures. Antony promised Cleopatra he would peace her opulent throne with kingdoms, and that their children would be proclaimed the kings of kings. Their defeat at Caesar's hands make these political aspirations almost laughable. But there's another perspective, which is Cleopatra's. She refers to Antony as a titan, a demi-atlas, the crown of the earth, a god whose reared arm crested the world. He isn't just a political figure, he's a figure of myth the kind all characters know and refer to in the play. Isis, Venus, Mars, Hercules. This is the kind of fame the lovers aspire to and which, by the end, they seem to gain. It's a play that starts in history, but it ends somewhere else. Like other Shakespearean tragedies, Anthony and Cleopatra leaves us with this scene of death and loss. But for me... At the end of the play, there's also a sense of triumph and accomplishment because as they leave the stage of Roman politics, they enter a grander stage of myth and that's where they still remain. In our next episode, we'll look closely at three speeches that show how the play's extravagant, visionary language works to transform these characters' mythic aspirations into reality.